the next RevDem episode. My name is Kasia Krzyżanowska and I am the RevDem editor. And our guest today is Martin Lachlin, professor of public law at the LSE. And just last year, he has published a book with Harvard University Press titled Against Constitutionalism, which has already spurred many debates. And we will talk about this book also today. Welcome, Professor Lachlin. Well, thank you, Kasia, for the invitation. Thank you for coming. And your interest in the book. <laughs> so let us, go, let us go straight to the point. So your book is an argument against a specific understanding of constitutionalism. So the one that elevates the founding text, the constitution, above the ordinary cut and thrust of politics. And should be, in your understanding, um, uh, should be a constitutional should be spoken about as an ideology. So could you explain mm -hmm. in a more detail your definition of constitutionalism against which you are arguing? Sure. Uh, the book presents uh, an account of a concept that's regularly invoked but rarely defined. I suggest first that constitutionalism uh, must be understood as a purely modern ideology. It presents itself as a theory concerning the role, standing, form, and telos of a modern invention, the written constitution. But I then go on to uh, uh, present a relatively precise definition of what I mean by constitutionalism. Specifically, I say that constitutionalism maintains that this written constitution should fulfill six criteria. The constitution first establishes a comprehensive scheme, secondly, of representative government, and thirdly, of differentiated powers. Those three first three criteria are not particularly contentious. They are features of constitutional government in general. It's the latter three that reveal its ideological force. So the Constitution must be seen, fourthly, to have created a permanent framework that takes effect, fifthly, as fundamental law. And because of those two features, permanence and uh, it being a, a body of fundamental law, the judiciary is engaged in an altogether novel task not that of interpreting the text, though it works with the text, nor of working within the confines of precedence, but rather it ends, the judiciary ends up trying to explicate the core values and principles of the society. And so in this way, the constitution is perceived uh, not just as a framework of government, but it stands, and this is the sixth, criterion, it stands as the authoritative expression of a regime's collective political identity. That's what I mean by constitutionalism. Perfect, thank you. So we can depart from there, and uh, maybe I can ask you, what is the difference between constitutionalism and constitutional democracy? Or what is more interesting, I think, <clears throat> when does mediocre constitutional democracy transform into mild constitutionalism? Okay. One of the themes of the book is to defend constitutional democracy 
against constitutionalism. In much of the contemporary discussion, the two are treated as more or less synonyms. And this, I argue, is wrong. They should not be conflated. And I try to show this by suggesting that modern government acquires its legitimacy from two main sources. First, adherence to a constitution that we, the people, have authorized. And secondly, by adopting a constitution that protects basic rights. But the question is, which prevails? Civic republicanism uh, prioritize, prioritizes the former. Liberalism prioritizes the latter. And recently, notably in the work of Jürgen Habermas, attempts have been made to reconcile these two uh, claims. I argue that such a reconciliation cannot be achieved in practice. And so in trying to do so, Habermas actually ends up prioritizing rights and defending constitutionalism. The Constitution does provide a framework for negotiating that tension. But the essential point I would emphasize is that constitutional democracy acknowledges that such attention can't be wished away. Disagreement and deliberation over these conditions must remain open to continuous negotiation, continuous political negotiation. And whatever else that might mean, I think it places clear structural limitations on the degree to which these issues can legitimately be resolved by the judiciary. The maintenance of a plurality of institutional sites of deliberation, decision-making, and accountability are markers of that indeterminacy, which is a feature of constitutional democracy. So they're essential markers of a constitutional democracy. Uh, well, the, the, the critical differences then concern first perception of the role of the constitution in, in political life. Is it a framework of government or is it an expression of the regime's basic values? And then secondly, uh, the role of the judiciary as the agency equipped to be able to resolve those tensions. Well, then you ask the tough question, Kazia, when does one morph into the other? Uh, here I'm going to bow out. That is an empirical question, and the book makes no pretense to answer that. All I can say is that lawyers are skilled at drawing differences of kind where others see differences of degree. Mm -hmm. So let me ask about the concepts, because you also are arguing against different types of constitutionalism. So civic popular political constitutionalism is also a no solution for you. So could you explain why do you think so? Why what, sorry? Why these concepts, these uh, proposals like political constitutionalism, popular constitutionalism, oh, yeah. are not reinvigorating uh, constitutionalism itself? Ah, 
Well, what what I would argue is that once I've given this uh, relatively precise definition of constitutionalism, then uh, those who s seek to put adjectival qualifiers on constitutionalism actually are trying to turn constitutionalism into something else. So popular constitutionalism might be an assertion of the popular power of the people, but is not constitutionalism in my understanding. Authoritarian constitutionalism might be an attempt by authoritarian regimes to cloak their legitimacy in the language of constitutional order, but it's not constitutionalism in my understanding. So I just, uh, once I've provided the definition I have, the, uh, these adjectival qualifiers uh, uh, become redundant and uh, uh, misunderstanding the character of the ideology. My, my colleague here in Yale, Robert Post, has written about democratic constitutionalism. Uh, it's not, I don't believe that it's either constitutionalism or it's constitutional democracy, but one can't assert particular phenomenon called democratic constitutionalism, either constitutional democracy or its constitutionalism, but uh, one can't conflate the two. Of course. So let us talk about constitutional democracy then. According to you, who is actually we the people in constitutional democracy? So who is the subject of law? Well, that's an excellent question but it's a difficult one to address briefly. We might start with two images of the people. Mm -hmm. First, there's the ideal construct. We, the people in whose name the constitution is authorized. And then there's the real people, what we might call the multitude. Uh, I show in the book that modern constitutional discourse is riven with this tension. Sies, for example, talks about the people as the nation and the source of all authority. But when we come to examine his argument further, we see that he excludes from the political nation not only the nobility, but also women, beggars, vagabond, domestic servant, anyone who's dependent on a master. His account signifies the breakthrough in ushering in a modern world of constitutional discourse, but it also, and so we can see it's the, 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 it's the French revolutionary moment, the beginning of the transition to modern thinking about constitution, but it also is legitimating the transfer of political power from the aristocracy to the bourgeoisie. Thereafter, the struggle is the quest for inclusion, the quest to include ordinary people in the world of the political nation. And I have a chapter in the book that discusses that precise question. But at this point, uh, I should emphasize that when we're engaging in constitutional analysis, we're working in 
a world of symbolic representation. And this is the reason why I argue that the concept of constituent power cannot be reduced to the will of the multitude, and neither can it be entirely absorbed and dissipated into the normative scheme of the Constitution. That means that we need to embrace some sort of relational notion in which constituent power is an expression of a dialectical engagement. It expresses the power-generating quality that constantly irritates the institutionalized form of authority. Uh, but although that's rather abstract, the point is that if one loses this representational role of the people in the constitution of authority, as I argue takes place with constitutionalism, then one loses a necessary plank of the constitutional's legitimacy. So I actually are just coming back now to asserting the, the need to have these two legitimating principles, democracy and rights, in tension with one another. And constitutionalism, actually, many constitutionalist uh, uh, advocates say constituent power is a redundant concept. I think that that loses a plank of legitimacy that ultimately corrodes the authority of a regime. Mm -hmm. So maybe now we can talk a bit more about uh, the other side of, of constitutionalism, so namely the judiciary, because mm -hmm. uh, Richard Posner wrote a piece that you cite that constitutional lawyers, and now I quote, know little about their real subject matter, a complex of political, social, and common economic questions, what they know is a body of decision written by other poorly informed students. And here the quote ends. You subscribe to this view, writing about the Constitutional Court as a forum that is relatively remote, unaccountable, costly. So my question would be, why then does constitutionalism vest its adjudicating powers in a group of oftentimes unequipped lawyers? And what makes lawyers believe in their role? Well, uh, well, the classic answer to that question was provided with great prescience by Alexis de Tocqueville. Writing in the mid-19th century, he argued that the danger posed by the coming of democracy was that it instills a sense of equality that might come to jeopardize liberty. And he went on to argue that the lawyers are the great bulwarks against that threat. And this is because he argues the lawyers quietly neutralize the vices of democracy by instilling aristocratic values into the democratic process. They speak the language of liberty but above all, they value order. Now, projecting this argument into the language of rights, lawyers reinterpret democracy as an expression of rights, and in the process, they thereby, however implausibly, 
present themselves as agents of democracy. So lawyers, Tocqueville says, are the great conduits of modern constitutional democratic discourse. But do you see any positive role of the constitutional lawyers? Because, for example, many argue that uh, the democratic transition in the Central Eastern European countries could not happen, could not have happened if it uh, had not been for the constitutional lawyers, constitutional courts that somehow eased the transition. Uh, well, I'm not sure lawyers were central to the transition. The transition was a product of geopolitical forces that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, uh, and uh, the reconstruction of the regimes of Central and Eastern Europe on uh, liberal democratic lines. Uh, but there were much more powerful forces behind that than the lawyers Constitutional courts, virtually all these regimes adopted a constitutional court and a constitutional court in the scale of modern their thought is a relatively new institution. Uh, it, it's an interesting institution because it's often established, uh, as we see in post-war uh, Federal Republic of Germany, uh, specifically to break with the civilian culture and to establish a special institution that is able to promote the values implicit in the constitutional order. So, yes, they play that vanguard role, uh, but um, I'm not sure how cent central they, they have been to bringing about the change. Of course. It seems now that the role of constitutional lawyers is especially vital because of the rule of law crisis that we are experiencing in the Union. So how would you assess the, the role of scholars, constitutional scholars? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> well, I think it's impossible to generalize because who are constitutional scholars? They are people like you and me and many other people who have a variety of views and world experiences and such like. There's nothing in the discipline. The fact that we're interested in the study of constitutions doesn't make us uh, advocates. Uh, the great split, I think, is between advocacy and analysis. It's clear that many constitutional scholars conceive their role as acting in the intellectual vanguard of judicial activism. They see their job as trying to try out some of the more adventurous intellectual tricks so that if they can be shown to work on paper, they might be adopted by constitutional courts in practice. Um, and with respect to what you call the rule of law crisis, then the role of this group is inevitably to try to bolster liberal rights against illiberal democracy. Well, important though that might be uh, at one level, there are, there are limits to this strategy. 
because courts, after all, have little political power. So another role for constitutional scholars is as analysts rather than advocates. They might try to offer a sober and critical account of what is happening, why it's happening, and with what consequences. And in that respect, they will be acting more like their fellow academics in the other social sciences. As you can see, I'm skeptical of the advocacy role of the constitutional scholar. I see. That's a very sober answer. Thank you for that. So let us come back to the constitutional democracy and its pro the problems with constitutionalism. Um, if the power is taken from the judiciary, how should the reclaimed power be exercised? Is there not a danger that it will fall into the hands of the executive and the influence of the democratic public will be, in fact, much lower than it is now and much more reduced? For example, we see that um, with the um, with the help of or, or in the jurisdiction of illiberal governments that tend to limit the popular participation in exercising power, paradoxically. Well, in such moments of crisis, I think there's a limited value in advocating alternative means of checking and controlling the exercise of executive power. That's not to say I don't think it's very important, but rather because in these moments of crisis, the growth of executive power does not just lead to the marginalization of the judiciary. It tends to go hand in hand with the bypassing of legislatures. Look, for example, at the way in which Erdogan was able to change Turkey's system of government from one of parliamentarism through to semi-presidentialism, through to presidentialism, through to authoritarianism. Now, that sort of trajectory and those sort of changes uh, raise profound political questions for which, uh, unfortunately, my work offers few answers. Okay. So um, let us talk about uh, the challenges that constitutional democracy has to face. As a worrying development in the second phase of modernity, you point out that an increasing amount of governing power is exercised by international institutions with lack which lack democratic authorization. But it seems that many challenges cannot now be tackled only by the national governments, and it's a common argument of those advocating for more global law. Uh, mm -hmm. so for example, coordinated action need, is needed for combating climate change, environmental challenges. So this is hard to be achieved by a limited government or by the means of traditional government. And how could... Uh, national or global constitutional democracy deal with these challenges? Uh, I take your point, but I'm not sure I understand the question. Uh, let me put it this way. Fewer than half of the countries in the world today are constitutional democracies. And I'd venture to suggest 
that most of them are in the vanguard of policy action to address the climate crisis or to protect against environmental degradation. These constitutional democracies are also leading participants in the work of international organization. There's nothing in the idea of constitutional democracy that suggests that their governments should not cooperate in promoting common international objectives. Uh, the degree of cooperation and action that's taken presently to address these threats, we might agree uh, uh, there's a broad sense that they are inadequate to the scale of the challenge that we face. But I doubt that there is a simple alternative institutional fix. I am really not sure what the global scholars think that they can achieve through trying to shift the paradigm from national constitutional democracies to some sort of super uh, powerful international agencies. Do they envisage some super powerful international agency equipped with the power to command nation states and multinational corporations? Well, that isn't that just pie in the sky? Isn't that just simply trying to find a simple uh, institutional template on paper and saying we need world government? Well, come on. <laughs> Yeah, that's somehow convincing. But let us stay in this global regime because you explicitly endorse Alexander Zomek's view that cosmopolitan constitutionalism and post-national citizenship discourse is actually neoliberalism with a leftist face. So could you elaborate why you think that cosmopolitan constitutionalism with international standards of human rights will not reinvigorate this ideology of constitutionalism? Yeah. Uh, what I argue is that cosmopolitan constitutionalism promotes a version of liberty and also equality, but it marginalizes the third element of the breakthrough, solidarity. Those on the left who are seduced by this ideology uh, may advance multiculturalism, but in doing so, they generally replace the left traditional focus on redistribution with that of inclusion. And rather than promoting greater equality, this move seems to me to entrench market ideology. Uh, to be crude about it for a moment, the Bobos, the bohemian bourgeoisie, get their ethnically diverse restaurants and cultural facilities, have cheaper migrant labor to act as house cleaners and child minders, and advanced Western societies are able to run their strained social service systems through this cheaper, 
migrant labour. But as Ivan Krastov, the Bulgarian political scientist, noted polemically, the post-communist revolutions in Eastern Europe are the first in history in which it is the victors who have left. That is, rather than stay and rebuild their societies, the young, educated, liberal professionals moved west to get better paid positions in advanced western economies. And that's why I think Somak is right to call it neoliberalism with a leftist face. Um, so let us stay with the market economy uh, theme. Uh, why do we perceive constitutionalizing the social market economy as a danger to the sovereign will of the people and democratic decision making? How could the welfare state in general be envisioned if it's not based on citizens' constitutional rights and states' obligations, on the other hand? Okay. Uh, there's two questions there, Kezia, and I'll try to answer the second one yeah. first. On how do we envisage a welfare state if it's not based on citizens' constitutional rights and the state's obligations? Well, Britain developed the welfare state in the mid-20th century, and it developed that welfare state without extensive, judiciable, individual rights. This welfare state was one in which government assumed responsibility for promoting the welfare of its citizens, and it did so through the collective provision of such services as housing, education, health, and social security. This welfare state provided the institutional basis for the realization of what might go full citizenship for all. And it did so in a sense by advancing a new set of social rights. But these social rights were not assumed to be individualized, judicially enforceable rights. Since this is the world in which I grew up, I don't have difficulty envisaging a state founded on basic citizenship rights, but do not uh, treat those as individual judicially enforceable rights. So I wouldn't conflate the welfare state world with the contemporary world that revolves around this figure of the individual rights-bearing citizen. And indeed, the growth of rights in the last three or four decades has, in, has evolved hand in hand with the growing inequalities of Western societies. So I think there's a correlation. I can't say there's a causal connection, but there's a correlation between a rights, an enhanced individualized rights discourse and growing inequalities. So to come to the first question, the danger of constitutionalizing the social market economy is that it's founded on pre precisely on individualization 
and indeed on the entrenchment of the power of competitive markets. And it seems to me to be one that's more likely to work for the benefit of those who are most able to care, to take care of themselves. Indeed, auto-constitutionalism, as I call it in the book, significantly inhibits the possibility through collective action of instituting a regime that protects those basic citizenship rights, as I explain them in terms of a welfare state regime. These are powerful statements, so thank you for them. And you mentioned Britain, so let me ask a question precisely about your country, because mm -hmm. you adopt a more cautious approach to populism, calling it, uh, following Peter Wiles, uh, syndrome rather than a specific ideology. In this reading, uh, populism is born out of dissatisfaction with functioning of constitutionalism and the functioning of the political parties. So would you assess Brexit as a, as a triumph of populism in the UK? Uh, no, <laughs> uh, not really. Though I'm conscious that many commentators do so. And generally, they do so without actually analyzing what has happened. It's true that the referendum result in 2016 closely correlates with social class. Uh, but does that mean that it's a populist measure when the have-nots win? but not so when the haves succeed? Would you say that the referendum is always a tool of populism? Was it a tool of populism when Polish citizens voted in 2003 to join the European Union? Was it a tool of populism when the citizens of Chile last year uh, voted to reject the new draft constitution that had been drawn up by a constituent assembly, because some say, some have argued that the Chilean result was a mark of the maturity of their polity. So I'm not sure what, whether, are referendums always populist devices? Well, let me come to the United Kingdom in 2016. By 2016, when the Brexit referendum took place, the referendum had been used on 10 previous occasions. And also, at, by that point in 2016, uh, all the major political parties had pledged that there would be no further transfers of powers to the European Union without first holding a referendum. This is because the European Union was becoming increasingly unpopular uh, at home. The Conservatives had been making such pledges since 2010, but despite this, in the 2014 European parliamentary elections, they were relegated to third place, and the election was won by UKIP. United Kingdom Independence Party working on a manifesto to leave the European Union. 
those developments, those political developments, provoked the Conservative Party to promise an in-out referendum on EU membership in their 2015 election manifesto. Now, there are lots of criticisms and flaws in the referendum process, and people talk about those, and I don't disagree, except for one thing. They generally say there were lies on the side of those who are seeking to vote to, to promote the Leave cause. There were lies on all sides. There were lies on by, by politicians uh, promoting Project Fear, Please, you know, don't vote to leave because otherwise we will, every member of the, every household will be £4,000 worse off. So there are lies all around. Uh, so I'm not a great, I'm not actually a great fan of referendums. Uh, but what I would say is that uh, if to say that the Brexit referendum was a triumph of populism fails to do justice to a much more complicated narrative, and uh, it it hasn't it hasn't it's unsettled our system undoubtedly, but it hasn't it hasn't changed our system of government radically. Let me ask one last question uh, that will regard the European Union. So do you see this constitutional ideology in the operational functioning of the European Union? Or do you see that the legal system of the EU resembles somehow constitutionalism? Yeah, yeah. Um... Yes, I think the European Union is the epitome of auto-constitutionalism. That is, it, it may not have been in its origins, but it has come today to become, to, 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 be, to be entrenching a neoliberal arrangement. And it has a constitutional form, and the constitutional form is an invented constitution and it's an invented constitution mainly by the court of justice of the european union and that invented constitution entrenches neoliberalism as you can tell i am <laughs> i am not a great fan of the european union as a constitutional project and and there are many reasons, I'm sorry, I'm going back to Britain for one moment. Uh, uh, many in Britain uh, were content with the European Union when it was a common market. What they became very dissatisfied with is when, it, when after Maastricht, it presents itself as a federalist project. And that, for the British, would never be acceptable. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. On this note, we will end. So thank okay. you very much, Professor Lagnin, for your okay. comments and answers. Thank you, Cassie. I hope they were useful. Of course. <laughs> thank you, and up until the next time.